Pack it up, pack it in, let me begin. Cause when I begin, the room starts to spin. Spin into the left, then back to the right. In Silicon Valley, the kids are not all right. Banks are going under, cash is getting tight. Job losses mounting, no IPOs in sight. Bankers getting nervous, regulators moving in. Is this 2008 all over again? Or is it 01? That was no fun. Pets.com crashing into the sun. Or is it 73? Pudetra, may we? I see some similarities, some similar follies. Inflation dominating the conversation. Hawkish central bankers with no explanation. No rhyme, no reason on why prices seem stuck. Despite eight straight rate hikes. This ain't about luck. It's not about right. It's not about wrong. It's about knowing how to get along in any market cycle, in every kind of trend. Stop fighting the Fed. The Fed's not your friend. Stop doing what you always did when always isn't here. Objects in the mirror are closer than they appear. Start recognizing that the dynamics done changed. The chairs on the deck have been rearranged. We gotta get right, hold tight, reset for success. This train is bound for glory. This Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. And what a week we just came through. A big bank collapse in Silicon Valley sending shivers throughout the financial industry. Another crypto bank going under. Another red hot jobs report and another week of losses for the major market averages. Big losses. The Dow fell 4.4% last week to post its worst weekly performance since June. The S&P 500 dropped 4.5% while the Nasdaq lost 4.7%. Regulators took control of Silicon Valley Bank on Friday, the nation's 16th largest bank by deposits, after shares tumbled Thursday, and the bank struggled on Friday to find another company to buy it. Regional bank stocks caved in the wake of the Silicon Valley Bank demise, with the S&P Regional Bank ETF dropping 16%, its worst week since March of 2020, just as the pandemic hit. Many of those bank stocks were repeatedly halted on Friday, including First Republic, PacWest, and the crypto-focused Signature Bank. First Republic dropped 14.8%, and PacWest dropped 38%. We're going to go deep into what really caused SVP's collapse and what the fallout will be with Christopher Whalen, one of the top banking experts in the business just a little later on in the show. But volatility was back last week and it was ready to party. The VIX or volatility or fear index as it's often called spiked 34% for the week. The yield on the 20-year treasury jumped 3.6%. Gold popped 0.8%. Equities dived and Bitcoin dropped 11% as risk was off the menu and traders went in search of safety. Are you not entertained? Are you not we are, but it feels like things are a bit precarious these days. The yield curve remains steeply inverted, stocks have lost their footing after a hot start to the year, and inflation is proving harder and harder to tame. And that brings us right to our big three for the week. The February unemployment report came in hotter than expected, but not as scalding as January's blowout number. Still, U.S. employers added 311,000 employees to their payrolls last month, nearly 100,000 more than expected, and the unemployment rate ticked up to 3.6%. More people are out there looking for work. The hottest sectors for jobs remained red hot. Leisure and hospitality added 105,000 jobs. Education and health services, 74,000. Retail, 50,000. Construction, 24,000. Professional and business services, 45,000. This is the services part of the economy, and this is where we're doing all of our spending. The only sector with losses last month, IT and tech. 
Wage inflation, which is one of the Fed's main concerns, actually cooled last month, rising just 0.2%. That's the smallest increase in a year. And while wages are up nearly 5% year over year, they are A, not keeping up with inflation, and B, those gains are going to the lowest paying jobs in the labor market. That's a good thing given how vulnerable lower paid workers are to inflation, and that will surely factor into the Fed's next decision on interest rates. Number two, how about a few more signs that inflation actually is cooling, especially in the commodities market? Fertilizer prices are down 59% from their peak last year, and they're at their lowest level since January of 2021. Wheat prices hit a 20-month low last week, down 49% from their peak last year. Soybeans and coffee also down double digits, and those lower prices are going to start to show up at the grocery store, where inflation is at 10% year-over-year. Beyond the grocery store, other key commodities are also getting cheaper. Copper is down 13%. Heating oil down 19%, West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil down 20%, Zinc's down 26%, Cotton 30%, Lumber prices, remember those, down 61% from their highs, and the list goes on and on. Consumers are going to start to feel those price drops, but so are manufacturers, and both may be reflected in this week's release of the Consumer Price Index and the Producer Price Index. The Fed will be watching, and so will we. And number three. Investors' hunt for yield has been very difficult lately, especially for dividend investors. Soaring inflation has pushed government bond yields to their highest levels in more than a decade, and stocks have been anything but stable. That, according to Barini and Associates, has led to a drop in the number of stocks that offer comparatively high dividend yields. According to Barini, there are just 34 stocks in the S&P 500 that offer a dividend yield above that of the six-month U.S. Treasury bill, which offers a yield of 5.1%. That's a big change from the end of 20. 2021 before the Fed started hiking rates at a historic pace when there were 379 stocks that offered a better yield than the six-month treasury. Alpha was easy back then, but so elusive today. And since U.S. government bonds are considered some of the safest investments on the planet, why would big investors take a chance in the risky equity market, even with strong dividend-paying stocks where they can get 5% out of treasuries. Last year, the S&P 500 high dividend index fell 1.1%, including payouts. Compare that to the 18% decline for the broader index. It was a better place to be. But since the beginning of this year, that high dividend index has fallen 4.9%. That's the landscape today. Know it and respect it. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and it is a big one. We're going to be watching the fallout from the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. On Sunday, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen approved actions enabling the FDIC to complete its resolution of Silicon Valley Bank in a matter that, quote, fully protects all depositors. Depositors will have access to all of their money starting Monday, March 13th, and no losses associated with the resolution of Silicon Valley Bank will be borne by the taxpayer. The FDIC also launched an auction for what's left of the business. Also, on Sunday, regulators, including the Federal Reserve, Treasury, and the FDIC, announced the closure of New York-based Signature Bank, which is a big lender in the crypto industry, in a bid to prevent the spreading banking crisis. They said the bank posed a systemic risk to the banking system. If it weren't for all that, inflation reports due out this week would have dominated the conversation about what's next for interest rates and the capital markets. The Consumer Price Index for February will be released on Tuesday, but don't expect a massive decline in prices, not just yet. Economists expect the CPI to clock in around 5.5% for the year, down from 5.6% in January. But keep an eye on food and shelter costs given the decline in commodity prices. The Producer Price Index for February will be released on Wednesday and should also show slight signs of moderation. We're also going to get updates to the Empire Manufacturing Survey 
and the Philadelphia Fed outlook. On Friday, the University of Michigan will release the preliminary March reading of the Consumer Sentiment Index, providing an update on consumer confidence in the United States. The index is expected to rise slightly to its highest levels since December of 2021. Despite the battering winds of inflation, consumer sentiment has rebounded in recent months off an all-time low it hit last June, and that surpassed previous record lows set during the Great Recession and the stagflation era of the 1970s and the early 1980s. We were not feeling good last summer. The U.S. Census Bureau will release retail sales figures for February on Wednesday as well. That'll indicate how consumer spending held up last month. Retail sales, which are not adjusted for inflation, likely edged up a little bit last month after surging 3% in January. We keep on spending and those credit card balances keep on rising. You better believe that the Fed's going to be paying close attention to all of these readings ahead of its next meeting on interest rates, which is March 21st and March 22nd. The probability of a half a point rake was growing every day last week leading into the jobs report, but the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and concerns about the rising impact of interest rates on bank holdings may have changed the Fed's tune. On the earnings front, a few widely held and widely followed companies will report their results this week, including FedEx, Adobe, Dollar General, and GameStop, the old meme stock wonder. We're going to be paying particular attention to FedEx's guidance for the rest of the year. FedEx and UPS are the canaries in the coal mine for the economy these days, and if they see a shipping slowdown ahead, brace yourself. As the earnings season winds down, the tail of the tape is not pretty. For the fourth quarter, S&P 500 gap earnings were down 27% year-over-year, the third straight quarter of negative year-over-year growth, and the largest decline since the second quarter of 2020. The collapse of Silicon Valley Bank last week sent shockwaves throughout the U.S. banking system, prompting concerns about bank insolvencies, rumblings of bank runs, and fears of another repeat of the great financial crisis. Silicon Valley Bank was a real bank with a 40-year history, $172 billion in deposits, serving the tech community, households, and family offices in one of the wealthiest parts of the world. This was not a fly-by-night crypto bank propped up by fairy dust tokens and over-leveraged with non-performing loans. This was the 16th biggest bank in the country and the biggest bank failure since Washington Mutual in 2008. So why did it happen? Could it happen again? And what will the fallout look like across regional banks and the global banking system? No one knows the banking system inside and out better than Christopher Whalen. He's the chairman of Whalen Global Advisors, the author of the Institutional Risk Analyst Newsletter, and the former head of research for the Kroll Bond Rating Agency. I relied heavily on Chris's research and analysis during the great financial crisis, and we are fortunate to have him this week on the Investopedia Express. Welcome, Chris. Hey, thank you very much, Caleb. It's complicated. We've explained a little bit of it so far in the show, but explain how, from your perspective, how Silicon Valley Bank collapsed. Well, there's two aspects to this. Number one, they had a lot of cash that they didn't necessarily have a way to lend out to their clients. So they decided a couple of years ago to put it into risk-free mortgage-backed securities. 40% of their balance sheet was in mortgage-backed securities. And unfortunately, as interest rates rose over the intervening period to today, the price of those securities fell down into the high 70s. So what that means is, is that the bank was staring at a 20 to 30 point capital loss on those risk-free securities. They have a zero risk weight for Basel, ironically. And why did this happen? Because the Fed raised interest rates six points. Now, the backstory is that before this, from really 2009 on forward to last year, the Fed had been buying a lot of bonds, 
especially during COVID. And so what happened was they dropped interest rates, they were buying securities, and we basically refinanced two thirds of all mortgages, most corporate debt into a band of about three percentage points. And the banks own this risk. So when you move interest rates six percentage points, you're gonna have a big problem. And any first year banking associate knows this, but apparently the folks at the Fed have this kind of blind spot. They seem to be insensitive to how their actions impact the real world. And as a result, you know, a very good bank that didn't really have anything wrong with it was attacked by short sellers really starting about two months ago. Bill Ackman's been very vocal about this. And they used social media to essentially destroy the bank. So this bank was an outlier. They had made a mistake. They had way too many mortgage-backed securities on their balance sheet. And that's how the short sellers found them. But as I said, this management team, this is not like they just got here. These are real bankers that have been doing this for a while with some very wealthy customers. Should they have not seen this coming, even though the Fed has been very aggressive over the past 12 months and pivoted at some point? Or was there no place to go just given the rapidity of the interest rate rises and the fact that the equity market was terrible? No, I think they did make a mistake. They, they didn't realize that quantitative easing would end. And in particular, the extraordinary activity in 2021, you knew that was going to end, or hopefully you knew. But let me say this, a lot of, they have a lot of company. There are a lot of banks in the industry that held on to production from that period. And now, like the Fed, they're underwater. This is the same problem the Fed has. They have an insolvency issue, but they're a central bank. When you're a little bank and you've got the short sellers out talking bad about you and scaring your customers, which is what happened with Silicon Valley Bank, then, you know, a good institution fails. Any bank can fail. They are levered 10, 12 to 1. So if they take a loss, guess what? The magnitude of that loss is magnified by the leverage. And that's ultimately the Achilles heel of any bank. But I'm hoping that we don't have a lot of other large banks that are in this outlier category. I do have the list, by the way. But, you know, that's what happened. The Fed needs to be more careful. And the, the other backstory here, Caleb, that's very interesting, is I think by concentrating the bond market and the loan market into such a tight band, it's like a crowded trade in equities, if you think about it. They've also limited their own flexibility in terms of monetary policy. So, again, we have all of these ill effects from quantitative easing and now tightening. And I don't know that they're going to be able to tighten very much more. In fact, if we have another bankroll over this coming week, they're going to have to drop rates. Right. That would be a very, very unusual sign. And usually when the Fed drops rates, it's a sign that things aren't going great. So this could be the tipping point. I want to get to this notion that this is kind of a perfect storm, Chris, where you did have, obviously, the Fed raising rates. You had this bank sitting on assets that were not performing, in fact, losing money. And so they were in trouble from that perspective. But they also have a lot of customers in the tech sector, both startups and established companies who are also having trouble right now with their own finances, trying to make payroll. And they also have the ill effects of rising interest rates. That hurts tech companies. Exactly. But you know, for your viewers, this is not a whole lot different from the years of Paul Volcker in 1980. He did the same thing to the SNLs and he caused a lot of SNLs to fail and collapse. But times are different now. We have a lot more debt and our financial institutions, frankly, are vulnerable to uh, social media in a way that they weren't 40 years ago. It's fascinating to ponder this. 
Yeah. I mean, the effects of Twitter and the fact that people are just talking about a potential bank run, that's like yelling fire in a crowded theater, that analogy everybody uses when it comes to times like this. This scares people. They want to go to the bank. They want to get their money out. They start thinking about their own bank if they weren't at SVB. So you get this magnified effect of all this happening at the same time. And then the fact that SVP was also going to go to the capital markets reportedly to try to raise some money because its finances were in trouble through another stock offering or through some type of offering, that just threw a lot more fuel onto the fire. So how did all these things come together in such a quick time period and take this bank out in basically a week? Well, in retrospect, Caleb, they should have raised money last year, honestly. Waiting till now when people are starting to worry about credit and they're a little bit worried about market volatility, that wasn't going to work. And then it exposed the vulnerability of the bank because when the deal failed and got pulled, the sharks just knew it was a matter of time. So I think people have to realize that this is about confidence. This is about people waking up in the morning, as you just said, and worrying about paying payroll for their little company. And those deposits in banks are not insured. Those are non-interest bearing transaction accounts that normally you don't think about. Now, the good news is I think somebody is going to buy the bank from the FDIC. The bad news is, is that the holding company, Silicon Valley SVB Group, is uh, probably going to file bankruptcy. And that's bad because you're going to zero a stock that was trading at multiples of book value a year ago, and you're going to probably impose a total loss on bondholders. Now, if you remember WAMU and uh, that period, we had had Lehman filed, then WAMU, and thank God Wells Fargo took down Wachovia Hole and didn't force us to have another bank holding company file bankruptcy because that is bad. So that's what I'm worried about for tomorrow. I think the depositors will be okay. And they need to understand that when the FDIC acts as receiver, they represent all depositors, even if they're not insured. And they're going to go get your money. I think what Yellen and Powell are going to have to do is open the discount window and allow all banks that have underwater securities like this to basically repo them to the Fed at par. To say, here you go, here's your money. We'll hold these as long as we have to. Because it's a liquidity issue. There was nothing wrong with this bank, Caleb. Right. It just got caught up. The timing was bad, but also it was not that well invested or hadn't pivoted. Eh, naive is how I would describe it in our blog. <laughs> okay. And folks, we will link to the Institutional Risk Analyst newsletter and blog. You got to follow Chris on Twitter too at RC Whalen just to follow his thoughts on this because he is on top of this. So let's talk about the banking sector overall. Coming out of the great financial crisis, we know there was new laws imposed on banks, Dodds-Frank and others that required them to have minimum capital requirements to bolster against runs, potential runs like this, or a downdraft in whatever securities they were holding. We know there are stress tests that the Federal Reserve performs. These are the, about over the 20 biggest banks. Silicon Valley Bank was the 16th biggest bank. So was something missed there? Or were things happening so quickly that this all of a sudden kind of appeared almost out of nowhere like a rogue wave? No, it's across the industry. We actually published an analysis of the industry where we mark everything to market, both the securities and the loans. And the industry, if you really did a fire sale tomorrow, has got a negative capital position of about a trillion dollars. Why? Well, because again, all of these securities are underwater and the loans in their book are underwater too. Now, if you remember the SNL crisis, at a certain point when interest rates rose too much, those securities were losing money. They were getting less from the bond than they were paying the funded. And that's what we're facing today. A lot of banks are going to be forced to sell this paper. So these market risk positions, if you will, become capital losses when they have to realize the loss. And this is the Fed. The Fed did this. 
And I think at some point, both Powell and Yellen are going to have to eat some crow and say they did not realize how much their own actions are constrained as they pursue the fight with inflation, right? Because of what they've done to the market with quantitative easing. I really don't think they can raise rates anymore, Caleb. If you have a big REIT or bank rollover, we're done. They're going to have to drop interest rates. So even keeping them where they are today is going to be painful for the industry. And I think that's something we've got to think about very hard. You follow all these banks very closely. A lot of them are not necessarily healthy, but the banking sector overall is in a much better position than it was in 2007, 2008, obviously. Yeah, it is. But the market risk is, again, the Fed is conflicted. They, on the one hand, are pursuing the Humphrey Hawkins dual mandate of full employment and price stability, which is impossible. And this makes the bank supervisory role that the Fed has impossible. Do you know, Caleb, that the governors never talk to the bank supervision people about how their policies impact banks? Never. I actually asked a couple of governors. They said, oh, no, we never talked to them. When I worked at the Fed in New York, we talked to everybody because the New York Fed in those days was responsible for market surveillance. After 2008, the board took everything to Washington, and they're in the ivory tower. They don't realize liquidity, for example. They model that as a function of GDP, as though that matters, right? No, we need to understand what's happening with financial institutions and markets, because otherwise we're going to have a repeat of it. Remember 2018, when the market seized up? We're going to have another one of those. So I think, you know, the Fed has to tread very carefully here. And honestly, I hope Powell goes up to Capitol Hill and has a conversation with Congress soon because he's run out of bullets. He really is. He is constrained and he's got all these demands on him. And frankly, he's got a highly conflicted mandate from Congress right now. He has to safeguard the banks, right? Like you said. But then on the other hand, he's got a increasing volatility between full employment and fighting inflation. The markets can't take it. Imagine if you were running a bank right now, what would you do? What would you invest in? Very hard. And keep in mind, the volatility since really 2020 has been so high that the cost of hedging a lot of these securities is prohibitive. You might as well not own them. You just stay in cash. The reserves at the Fed, right? They have no market risk. But other than that, even treasury bonds, highly risky securities. The other day I was sitting with my treasury trader. We moved about 30 basis points on Friday. 30 How do you hedge? That, that never happens. <laughs> In the treasury market, that never happens. It's the slow boat, but it is the boat that moves all the other boats in the water. Oh, no, it gaps now. There are liquidity gaps even in treasuries. And by the end of the day, Friday, you'll appreciate this. We were trading flat. In the morning, we were trading with accrued interest. By the afternoon, things were so volatile that people were quoting treasuries flat. That's bad. Back to the Fed and the responsibility for the Federal Reserve and Jerome Powell. They don't necessarily like to be in the spotlight, although the spotlight has been on the Federal Reserve since basically the pandemic began and it floored interest rates. And then in the past year or so has been aggressively raising interest rates, again, going to quantitative tightening, selling bonds off its assets sheet, trying to reduce its balance sheet. And 
this is one of the effects of it right now, but there's a lot of other things going on. So looking at the health of the banking sector, you have the fact that we don't have a lot of performing assets right now. We have underperforming assets. You also don't have a lot of investment banking activity, which is the butter for the bread of banks, especially a bank like Silicon Valley Bank out there in Silicon Valley trying to do deals, raising money, loaning money. There's not a lot of that going on. You have rising credit card debt, rising auto delinquencies, rising rates. So you have pressure on the consumer, pressure on businesses, and almost no banking activity. If you're looking at investing in banks from a stock perspective, it's kind of rough out there. Even though you would think rising rates would be good for their net interest margins, there's not a lot of good going on under the hood, is there? No, I've been in preferred since 20. I sold all my common. The only common I own right now is Credit Suisse. I did that on a lark since it was so cheap. I figure the Swiss government will fix this eventually, right? But there's a lot of stuff going on in the world of secured finance that we can't cover today that's really concerning to me. The Fed's actions have disturbed the whole bond market. And the bond market is the bottom line of the American economy. The reason we always recover is because we're able to finance new activity. We start new stuff and off it goes, right? We factor and finance commerce. How do we move all these consumer goods around, right? It's because of the bond market. So we've got to be really careful not to mess this up. And I think Powell and his colleagues have a really tough situation. They may have to back off. I really believe they may have to drop rates and open the window wide. Yeah, we will definitely keep our eyes open for that. And that could happen as early as Monday morning, right when this podcast come out. But this week will be super pivotal. So for folks who are out there, everyday mom and pop folks or small businesses who are dealing with their regional bank, they may be in that area or just around the country. What's your advice for them? A lot of people are using the word bank run, but this is not what we're talking about here. And I want to make sure that we're super careful about the language because words matter in times like this. Look, most banks in this country are in fine shape, as you were saying before. They may take some hickeys if they have to sell some of these securities, but most of them don't look like Silicon Valley Bank. You don't have 40% of your balance sheet in mortgage backs. I'm sorry. That's bad. More than even high single digits worries me because they vary. They have variable maturity, and that's the risk. This is why long-term capital management failed the same thing. So I think for most of them, you just want to make sure the bank is liquid. You want to see that they have diversification, not too many broker deposits, for example, because those could go. But most community banks, I'm not worried about it. Core deposits is a very stable way of funding assets, and they're going to be fine. But business people, you know, they always get antsy because they keep payroll, they keep other funds, escrow funds, for example. I work in the mortgage business. People are always worried about that. But I think when push comes to shove, by early next week, the Fed is going to have figured out a way to address this market risk, unrealized loss issue that was actually highlighted by the FDIC when they released their data two weeks ago. They put in a new chart, which showed the unrealized losses in the industry. But I think uh, the Fed's going to provide a liquidity solution for this, and then this problem is going to go away. But just remember, the FDIC is the most important consumer agency in Washington, and they're very good at what they do. So if you're a depositor of Silicon Valley, go read the website. There's contact information there, and they will tell you what you need to know. And just for the basics, for folks that don't know this, the FDIC insures up to $250,000 of deposits. So you can get that right away. But if you have more than that in the bank, then you become basically a creditor, right? You get a note from the bank for a payout later. You get in line for a payout. So how does that process work? No, but remember that depositors are all first in line, even the uninsureds. And the FDIC acting as receiver will represent them and go look for their money. I've worked for receivers in the past and they're 
very, very cool. They have federal judges and the marshals and the FBI. So they will take care of the depositors. I'm more worried about the holding company, the fact that the equity holders are going to be wiped out and the bondholders are probably going to take a significant loss as well. But I think depositors should not get overly excited. Everyone should calm down, read the paper tomorrow and listen. Well, Chris, you know that we are a website built on education and our investing in finance terms. You have such deep knowledge of this industry in general. I'd love to know your favorite investing or finance term, something that is super appropriate for the topic that we're discussing today to share with our listeners. EBITDA, that's what governs the world. Earnings before interest, depreciation, taxes, and amortization. It basically shows you the operating cash flow of the business and a lot of companies included in their disclosure. It's interesting, but it's not everything. You should always ask yourself, why are they showing me this? What do they not want me to look at? Like a lot of people use tangible equity instead of the gross. And I said, no, I paid for all those assets. I want to know how your performance is against the money I spent. Don't tell me what's tangible. (laughs) I paid for these tangibles. Also, one of the most popular terms and definitions on Investopedia, EBITDA. We're going to have a shirt, T-shirt, an EBITDA T-shirt, and you're going to get one of those. Christopher Whalen, the chairman of Whalen Global Advisors, the author of the Institutional Risk Analyst Newsletter. We'll link to it in the show notes and definitely follow Chris, especially this week on Twitter. RC Whalen is the handle there, one of the great experts in the banking industry and a voice I've relied on over the years. Thanks so much for joining The Express, Chris. Thank you. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing and finance term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Ganjali Gupta, who reached out to us in an email suggesting FDIC, given the news surrounding Silicon Valley Bank. The FDIC, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, is the regulator in charge of the nation's bank and front and center in the drama surrounding all the banking activity these days. According to Ganjuli and my favorite website, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, FDIC, is an independent federal agency insuring deposits in U.S. banks and thrifts in the event of bank failures. The FDIC was created in 1933 to maintain public confidence and to encourage stability in the financial system through the promotion of sound banking practices. Practices. As of 2020, the FDIC insures deposits of up to $250,000 per depositor as long as the institution is a member firm. The FDIC was born out of the ruins of the Great Depression. America's financial markets were in terrible shape in the early 1930s. More than 9,000 banks failed by March of 1933, and a lot of that was triggered by the stock market crash of October 1929, which kicked off the worst economic depression in modern history. Congress took action to protect bank depositors by creating the Emergency Banking Act of 1933, which also formed the FDIC. The FDIC's purpose was to provide economic stability to the failing banking system. Officially created by the Glass-Steagall Act of 1933 and modeled after the deposit insurance program initially enacted in the state of Massachusetts, the FDIC guaranteed a specific amount of checking and savings deposits for its member banks. That's that 250000 figure we cited earlier. And since the FDIC is in the news and listeners may be wondering what happens if you have more than $250,000 in the bank, we're going to give you a two-for-one special on our term of the week this week. 
Dax, who goes by DKDad3X on Instagram, hit us up suggesting certificate of receivership for this week's term, and we aim to please here on The Express, so you're getting two for the price of one. According to our favorite website, a certificate of receivership, or receivership certificate as it's often called, is a debt instrument issued by a receiver that serves as a lien on the property and provides funding to continue operations or to protect assets in receivership. In the case of SVB, the FDIC said customers with uninsured assets or those with more than $250,000 in the bank will receive a receivership certificate for the remaining amount of their uninsured funds. As the FDIC sells the assets of Silicon Valley Bank, future dividend payments may be made to those uninsured depositors holding those certificates. Good suggestions, Ganguly and Dax. Investopedia's finest socks are coming your way, so DM or email us with your mailing address and your particulars. We're going to let Milton Friedman take us out this week. The Nobel laureate and the godfather of monetarism hosted a terrific film series with swift economics to explain the Great Depression and the bank runs that followed, which ultimately led to the formation of the FDIC, as we just learned. Here's Friedman explaining what happened when the Bank of the United States fell victim to a bank run in 1930 and was forced to close its doors for good. All the other New York banks, led by J.P. Morgan, refused to backstop the Bank of the United States, and so did the Federal Reserve. For the other New York banks, they thought that closing the Bank of the United States would have purely local effects. They were wrong. Partly because it had so many depositors. Partly because so many of the depositors were small businessmen. Partly because it was the largest bank that had ever been permitted to fail in the United States up to this time. The effects were far-reaching. Depositors all over the country were frightened about the safety of their funds and rushed to withdraw them. There were runs, there were failures of banks by the droves, and all the time the Federal Reserve System stood idly by when it had the power and the duty and the responsibility to provide the cash that would have enabled the banks to meet the insistent demands of their depositors without closing their doors. Now we know that the Fed has changed its tune on backstopping banks that are in trouble. We learned that during the great financial crisis. It didn't bail out Silicon Valley Bank last week, and it won't. But will it do what Chris Whalen suggests it should do? Open its discount window and allow banks to access as much capital as they need to weather this storm. We're going to find out a lot this week. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.